Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. If you go through the Northern Spirit Radio, Spirit in Action archives, all available on our website, you'll find lots of programs on various aspects of racism and workers dedicated to healing the wounds and damage of racism. Today, we add one more. Monica Tetzloff is an associate professor of history at the University of Indiana of South Bend, and her special interest is in African-American history. So my curiosity was piqued last year when I got notice that she was going to be presenting, as part of IU's Pop-Up University Online, a program called The Role of History in Reparations, From Global to Local. Monica has not only studied the history around reparations, she's been one of the teachers leading her university's Freedom Summer course, taking their students throughout the South to the sites of the most dramatic events of the Civil Rights Movement. Today we'll talk about efforts for reconciliation and reparations and listening to the hearts and lives of those most affected by racism in our country. We'll be using Zoom to head south to South Bend, Indiana, to visit with Monica Tetzloff, accompanied by her dog, who is working industriously on a sizable bone right at Monica's feet. Monica, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's great to be here, Mark. Thank you. And I apologize up front. I already had hoped to interview you last September. But in the meantime, you've increased your knowledge. That's right. I think this is great. I, I just finished a trip called Freedom Summer, and I feel actually in many ways more prepared to talk to you now, having sat with my talk on reparations and now having taken students on this study tour of the civil rights movement called Freedom Summer. Actually, we're mainly going to be talking about reparations. And since you're a professor of history, we're looking at the historical steps, what's happened, the events that made reparations necessary, certainly as part of it, but what steps have been taken and how it has been effectively or ineffectively been done is also important. So we're going to be doing that. But basically, I'd like to talk about that trip. How many years have you been doing that? I've been doing it since 2004. Okay. And I assume one year you didn't do it while you were in Ghana. That's correct. It only happens every two years as we wait for a critical mass of students. Also, there were some years that there were various reasons why we needed to skip another year. And how much is this trip educational for your students as opposed to for you? Well, I get to learn very deeply because I get to make repeat visits. I find that it is transformational for the students, particularly white students who are unfamiliar with African-American history. That can happen in a classroom, reading books, transforming your knowledge and understanding of race relations. But to actually meet people who were part of the civil rights movement and to go to the sites and to see the museums and the memorials that makes a really deep impact. And of course, for students who are people of color, there's also a very profound transformational effect as well as they connect with parts of their ancestors' history. And how does the student body that goes, what do they look like? 
Well, my class is majority white, as is my institution. There are African-American students. There are Latinx students. There are LGBTQ students, those who openly identify that way and those who don't. Are there also Republicans and Democrats and white nationalists? I mean, who takes part in this course that way? Well, we don't ask, (laughs) but I suspect a few are Republicans, a few are Democrats, and I suspect quite a few really haven't decided or feel like politics is not for them. At least one student said that on this trip. She said, I've never voted. It It never made sense to me, even though she's like 22. And she said, now I understand after having gone to Selma and Mississippi, now that has a really different meaning for me. And that's what I mean by there being a transformation in understanding and then also the desire for action. Give me a little idea of the itinerary as you travel and do this. We do a loop traveling down from Indiana on a chartered bus to Nashville, Tennessee, the place where the student sit-in movement was very strong. We go to Atlanta, Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, Jackson, Mississippi, the rural delta of Mississippi, and Memphis, Tennessee. Are any of these spots particularly poignant for you personally, Monica? They are. I've never lived in any of these places, but I would say the delta of Mississippi and the Equal Justice Initiative and their Memorial for Victims of Lynching, the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, I find very moving. And and also the King Parsonage there where Martin Luther King lived as a young minister. There are a lot of things about Montgomery that are incredibly rich and moving. And the, the people we meet there and in the Delta have had a big impact on me. You lived, as of 1968, your family moved down to Florida and you lived there. So you actually got to see some segregation and uh, eliminating of segregation happening right in your lifetime as a young person. I actually got a glimpse of it myself when I was seven years old, just turned eight. My family moved down, lived in Victoria, Texas. So I actually went to a school that had integrated. I had black students in my third grade class back when we moved there. So I got to see just a tiny glimpse of it then, which is something that I was completely lacking at when I lived up in Wisconsin. Indiana is a different story, I suppose. So for you, had you been exposed to race at an early age? And how does that inform your interest in it as Associate Professor of History at Indiana University in South Bend? Well, I missed the integration of the public schools in my hometown, even though it happened the year that my family moved there because they sent me to a church kindergarten, which was all white. And then the teacher recommended that I go to a private school. And my parents thought that was a good idea. And there were no black students in the private school. It was a college preparatory school. It was Episcopal. And it was all white until about seventh or eighth grade when the first black student came to that school. You know, I was pretty oblivious. I saw the way the world worked and didn't question it a whole lot. As far as Black people lived in Gifford, I lived in Vero Beach. People from Gifford, African-Americans, were out of Vero Beach by sundown, and I never even thought about why that wasn't a good thing. I learned nothing about the civil rights movement 
our teacher told us, but when, and I should, uh, I should add in 10th grade, I wanted to go to public school. And so I did. And I went to a public high school that had been formed as part of the integration plan. They had closed the black high school in Gifford and everyone in the county went to the one giant high school. So it was a football powerhouse. We were state champions. There were a lot of things that actually everybody <laughs> in the community gained from working together. I worked on an award-winning yearbook. The whole community supported the yearbook, including, you know, Blacks, whites, everyone who was there. I went out selling ads and I saw this like, oh, yeah, we love the high school. And, you know, it just made me proud at that point, even though I didn't I didn't understand fully at all what was going on. I was very clueless until I went to college. It was in college that I really started to understand a little bit about racism in the U.S. and started to study African-American history. Yeah. So what I was going to say was we didn't even study the Civil War in high school because, in fact, the teacher literally said to us, that's too controversial. <laughs> oh, it's like critical race theory. It's too controversial because. <laughs> and I mean, the things I teach are the things that there was a bill before the Indiana legislature not to teach history that makes some people uncomfortable. And of course, the history of slavery and racism can make you feel uncomfortable if you're white. And <laughs> some of my Black friends said, well, I feel uncomfortable when my child has to learn history where they're left out or misrepresented. <laughs> and so it didn't pass. That's the good news. But they do have those kinds of restrictions on teaching about race and racism I, that worries me because I feel like I missed out. I truly did. I would have had a much better understanding and been a better citizen, a better human being had I been able to study that. And not everyone gets to go to college and have a transformation like I did. And fortunately, people who go to Indiana University in South Bend, where you are, they do get to have a transformational experience because they get to take classes with Monica Tetzloff. And specifically, you teach a fair amount related to... Well, my usual teaching load is to teach the introduction to American history, which is great. It's actually a diversity in the U.S. course that has that's a designation because our history is multicultural. So at a very introductory level, I do teach that on a very regular basis. That's something most students can dip their toe into. <laughs> and then for those who are ready to dig a little deeper, I teach women's history, the history of women in the United States. And that's also a diverse class. We study all different ethnic groups and we I've done hopefully a little bit better on indigenous women um, and students have a great interest in that. I teach the history of the environmental movement because, you know, um, global climate change and environmental justice are really important issues. And we have a good sustainability program at Indiana University South Bend. And that's another area that I teach. And then I teach African-American history. And the Freedom Summer class, I should add, is taught by myself and my co-instructor, Dr. Daryl Heller. And he is the director of the Civil Rights Heritage Center which is a unique institution that we have, which is a museum started by the first Freedom Summer students. And he is a brilliant teacher, activist, and writer. So I get to work with some really good people. It's not just me who helps to facilitate students to have a transformational experience. 
Monica, one more thing I'd like to discuss is how you got there. You said up front when we were talking about your past, you weren't raised with this fire in your belly, this concern. And even though you had a church upbringing, I believe you were Baptist raised, you never got this fire in your belly. Your spirit was never lit for this. How did you get from one to the other? I think I had a sense of, you know, what would Jesus do as I was growing up? And that's kind of how I would judge things. And it seemed to me that Jesus would help the poor and Jesus healed people. And Jesus was about forgiveness and not judging on past actions. It was really that good news that I felt motivated me. And I think when I became aware of more injustices, I just really felt wow, we we need to work harder to create the kingdom of God on earth. And even though I'm not as necessarily biblically based at this time, I am still a follower of Jesus in that sense of love your neighbor as yourself and love God and following that spirit. And the spirit definitely led me to fall in love with African-American studies. I mean, when I was a, a Baptist child, we used to sit there and fear that, And this is so racist that we would be called to be a missionary in Africa because we had been taught that Africa was a scary place. Well, I'm here to tell you (laughs) that in my life, some of the happiest times that I've ever had was when I had the privilege to apply for and receive a Fulbright Fellowship to go to Ghana and to be a professor in Africa and to deepen my knowledge of African-American history through being in the motherland of Africa and being with African Christians, Muslims, atheists, those who are working for social justice there. And I see them as my brothers and sisters. And that sorry, that's my dog. (laughs) And that is how the spirit works. Like once I just, you know, sat still and said, where am I going to be led? And what gives me fire and passion? And when I started to study African-American history, I said, this is it. You know, if we were in Nazi Germany, yes, I would need to stand up for Jewish people. And sometimes that might happen here, but definitely there is racism against African-Americans. There's colonization and all kinds of oppression against indigenous peoples. And we need to do something about that. So being open to the spirit there, knowing that I can't do everything, but finding these things that I can do, like teach or, you know, research a history that's difficult and then present it. Those are the things that have brought me joy, as well as the pain and the sorrow of feeling the hardships of the past. There's one other thing, Monica, that you didn't mention that must play some part in your spiritual growth, your whole embrace. You've got a wonderful, inspirational, and just beautiful daughter whose skin is dark. So racism lands on people in your house. It does. And, you know, I was fighting racism before I adopted my daughter and I'm fighting it afterwards even harder (laughs) because it's about having a better future for her. You know, if I didn't have a child, it would equally morally be my obligation to do the work that I do. And I'm and I found joy in it before I became a mother. But I think that being a mother and being a parent was also a calling of mine and 
I was really excited about having an interracial family. I know there are challenges and there are things that I need to do to make sure that my daughter is connected to her heritage and to her birth family. But it has been nothing but joy for me and a blessing to be in a family that's diverse and with my own special, unique daughter. You know, my own magical solution to the problem of racism in this country, and particularly the wealth gap that you referred to, all of that, is that automatically all of our children's, whatever color they are, they get switched between families. And so whether my son is black or is Latinx or is, it all gets shuffled. And so there's no longer whites giving to whites or blacks giving to blacks. It's we are all passing it on to our children. If I could magically do that in one generation, the entire wealth gap would disappear. And there were so many laws against intermarriage because those who wanted to maintain white supremacy knew that part of breaking it down is to be family members together. Absolutely. Well, the real reason I have you here, Monica, is to talk about the reparations possibility. It certainly, over the last several years, has become a major topic of conversation. Some people have stolen from that thunder, tried to divert us in different directions. Critical race theory being abolished in school. I mean, it's all related to this discomfort with this past. First of all, as you gave your presentation last September, you started out by talking about what reparation is. So what are reparations? Well, to me, the first part of reparations is truth-telling, just trying to find, I know it's hard sometimes, the records are often not good, but certainly to the best of our ability, trying to find the truth about the past and listening to those people who are from groups that were harmed, listening to their stories. That's one of the first parts, acknowledging that harm. And so, for example, the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery that remembers victims of lynching is an important part of reparation to recognize things in history that have been wrong. And then I think listening to those who are either directly harmed or those who are the descendants of those who were harmed, finding out what it is that they think would be a just reparation and trying to make that happen. That's where I see my definition of reparations. When you start out with reparations, you go to acknowledgement, apology, you actually do reparations of some sort, and then you can actually have reconciliation. Where do you think we are in the U.S. in terms of this process? I think there are some white people who are listening to the stories of those who were harmed. I think there are some communities that are acknowledging the harm. And there are a few communities who have apologized for, I think it was important that you added that. I think I might've forgotten that apology is important. So I think there are different places that are in different steps. A few have put together a package of reparations, Evanston, Illinois, for example. And, you know, it's not perfect, but that's the stage. I don't think anyone has truly arrived at reconciliation. I think maybe in individual relationships that might happen, but those are the stages I see us at in the beginning stages for the most part. 
I just wanted to mention, Mark, that listeners might hear my dog chewing a bone. And um, that's because I didn't want him to be barking during this interview. So it was one or the other. <laughs> well, you mentioned perfection. No, no one's got it perfectly right yet in terms of reconciliation. The thing is, chewing a bone is much better than barking. And we can recognize the superiority of the steps along the way. So, again, you're a professor, Monica, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University of South Bend, and history of reparations. Very few people are even aware that there is a history of them. Certainly, there's stuff that's happened in the past 50 years. I'm curious how far back we could go. Can you reach back 200 years and find reparations happening in some shape or form? I imagine it had to happen. I'm not assuming you know all of world history, but in the U.S., what's the furthest back steps towards that kind of movement towards reparation and reconciliation that you can think of? Well, around the time that slavery ended, there was an attempt at reparations. The radical Republicans proposed what people commonly think of as 40 acres and a mule land and army mules to help you farm it. They proposed breaking up the largest of the southern plantations into smaller farms. So that would have been reparations. And also there were African-American activists at that time who were asking for reparations, sometimes on an individual basis. There's a very good letter that my American history textbook has where a formerly enslaved man who is now in, was, was in Canada when he was writing to his enslaver calculated the hours he'd worked and deducted, you know, food and medical expenses and said, here's a bill. <laughs> But those were the earliest that I am aware of, but they didn't pass. You know, we never got 40 acres in a mule. Well, in your presentation again last September, the role of history in reparations from global to local, you start by talking about what happened in Germany. There was the Holocaust, so many, millions of people killed, including maybe six million or so Jews who were victims of that, and Germany recognizing that it was predominant leader in that effort. Uh, so talk about German reparations, because for me, that's actually hopeful. It is possible that someone can take responsibility, look at the history, and take some concrete steps. You can't change history but maybe you can free people from the shadow of it to the degree where we can go on. So what happened in Germany? Well, in Germany, after World War II, the German government made reparations to Israel and also to individual Jewish people who had been harmed by the Holocaust. Those payments are, you know, never, there's never enough, but they were in some measure negotiated with those who were harmed. And there was definitely a feeling that reparations should be paid. Now, Germans were the losers in the war, and they were ashamed in some, some ways about how Hitler and, and the German people had behaved during this time. That was an important part of why reparations happened. I think acknowledging the harm and memorializing, that took longer, actually. I remember going to Germany as a child. My parents are from there and not seeing markers in the smaller towns and cities. There were some concentration camps that had become places that you could visit, but 
That has been much more active since the 90s and especially since 2000. I think it's been a process there. It's uh, one of the scholars that I studied, Susan Nyman, who wrote a book called Learning from the Germans, where she compares the Germans to the Southern United States and how they've handled the Confederacy. She says it took generations to really recognize what had happened there. And she actually doesn't put as much stock in the literal reparations as in teaching the history from the perspective of the victims and remembering the history with memorials. In Germany, one of the things that you mentioned about, Monica, was the paving stones. I think they're called stumbling stones with individual names on. And that's as opposed to a major building or museum or monuments, these very personal little things. Why do you think those are powerful? I think that type of very small scale monument or memorial is so intimate. It just can't be denied that there was a human being who lived there, who was in the census, who was in the city directory, who was Jewish, and then was killed. Their death date is, you know, Auschwitz or a place like that. And it's so simple. There's not a big story. You do have to know a little bit of history, of course, to understand what might have happened there. Or if you don't, you might want to look it up. And of course, today you can look anything up. So it's an invitation to learn more, to be curious, and you can't really walk away from it. It's not like, I want to avoid that memorial. I don't want to deal with that. If you walk down the street in Berlin, those stones are there and you you might stumble upon them. They won't literally stumble and fall, but you don't know where they might turn up. I think that is powerful. I think also the markers that are used at the lynching memorial with the names and then also, um, so now I'm switching to the United States and, and a memorial that I think is also powerful. The names, the date of the lynching, and then it's not always matched with a marker. In fact, it usually isn't, I think, but some of the reasons for the lynching, like organized workers, organized sharecroppers, asked a white woman for a glass of water. You know, there are things on there that you wouldn't believe that violated the racial status quo and hierarchy that human beings were lynched for. It's incredible. I actually have drawn significant hope from the way that Germany has come to look at their past. Certainly, I believe slavery is mentioned in our histories and certainly the Civil War called maybe different things from the South's point of view and the North's point of view. But it's hopeful for me that I think Germany can, to the degree it has, even if the reparations seem small, miserly from one person's point of view, we can't change history. But by fully embracing it, we can possibly learn from it and do differently today. The U.S. is so far from embracing our history that and yet the fact that the horrible, horrible in-your-face stuff that happened with Germany, the fact that some people can look at it without flinching too far, that gives me hope. Yes. You also talk about the Japanese internments, which happened during World War II, between 42 and 45. 
after Pearl Harbor, when the U.S. also declared war with respect to Japan, all of a sudden Japanese Americans, particularly on the West Coast, were considered suspect. They might be inside supporters to overthrow the United States government. So because of that fear... And in particular areas in the United States, a number of Japanese Americans were ripped out of their homes and shipped off to the desert to these internment camps. I think that one of the reasons that we could look at that more clearly is because the names were all there. All of the African Americans who were oppressed in our country, we don't have faces and names for them. They're too legion, for one thing, and there's enough history going back hundreds of years that it's hard to name them. But the U.S. did deal with issues of reparations with respect to the Japanese internment victims. That's right. And I think that's an important moment in history that we want to remember. It was only those who were literally survivors who received those reparations. So the descendants that might have been harmed by their family members losing their businesses or homes were not compensated. But it certainly was a a step for those and a really important acknowledgement. And that history, I believe, is taught. I certainly was taught it, even though I was taught almost nothing about slavery and certainly nothing about segregation and Jim Crow laws or anything that happened to African Americans during the era of lynching. And I also want to mention the Aleuts because they are the indigenous people that I know the most about because they were compensated at a national level, albeit with a smaller sum than the Japanese because they were interned at the same time. They were interned supposedly for their protection from Japanese attack because the Aleutian Islands by Alaska are were vulnerable. And they also were, there were some captured by the Japanese and interned by the Japanese. On the other hand, they were treated very, very callously. About 10% died under the conditions of their internment, much higher than the Japanese in the desert. It seems that absolutely no account of their will, their humanity, or their dignity was taken. When they returned to their homes, their homes had been looted. Their sacred objects had been destroyed. This is very deep. So I think telling some of those stories and not sweeping that internment under the rug is also an important part of acknowledging the truth of history. You said that reputedly they were doing it for the protection of the Aleuts. I think when you said it during the lecture, which Monica Tetzlaff, you you delivered last September, I think you just said it was they were interned for their protection. Is there a question about that? Or was this, again, a fear like with the Japanese Americans that they may be turncoats hidden in our midst? There wasn't so much a fear that they were turncoats, but they weren't trusted in the way that non-Aleutians were. So they were living on islands where there were also non-Aleutians and they were not interned. So this is one of the reasons I say that. And I need to do a little bit more research about it, but it's something that I've begun to look at. It, It came up shortly before I gave my lecture. I was looking up Japanese reparations and there it said, and Aleutians. So I've still been learning about that. And I also now at this point, having tried to educate myself a little bit more, I use that word supposed because they were also the men were pulled out and forced to hunt seals. You know, uh, you might have heard of the 
clubbing the baby seals. They were forced to do this to make money for the government to pay for their own internment. So I now would say protection in quotation marks and air quotes, because how much protection is it when you allow them to come back for a profit and when you don't provide conditions in which people can survive during that time? Those are some wonderful points you make, Monica. Folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our guest today is Monica Tetzloff, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University of South Bend. Amongst other things, she is one of the people who teaches the Freedom Summer course from the university there, takes a cadre of students through a lot of the most important spots in the whole work for civil rights from the 1950s and 60s. She's been steeping herself in those elements of history and teaching them as well as many other subjects at Indiana University of South Bend. Again, Spirit in Action is what you're listening to. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, where you find all of our guests and links to our guests for the past 17 years we've been doing this program. In particular, on the site, you will find a link to the presentation that Monica and several other people did last September, The Role of History in Reparations from Global to Local. And there's a couple students, uh, Mohammed and Derek, who are former students of Monica's, who also participated in that presentation. That link is on northernspiritradio.org, along with all of these other people, the hundreds of people I've interviewed for both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul over these past 17 years. Find that on our site and follow up that way. And there's also a place for you to give us feedback. Communication is so important, and feedback to us, advice, input, your evaluation of what we're doing is welcome, because I think it's by the process of good communication that we can move towards a better future for everybody. So please comment when you visit. There's also a place to support us. There's a donation drop-down under support, and you can make this continue. We do not operate by corporate donations or government donations, but by you, the listener, supporting us. So please help us out that way. And even more so, I want to encourage you to support your local community radio station. Local media is so important. Again, Monica lives in South Bend, Indiana, and I'm not sure, but there's probably some wonderful local stations and local media, maybe local newspaper there. What have you got there, Monica? Well, I would say that 88.1 WVPE, our local NPR, National Public Radio station, is really great. There's a local feature called Michiana Chronicles, and there are opportunities even outside of the Chronicles that there's a one every week by a different area writer. But there are multiple opportunities for folks in the community to record small pieces on areas of interest and social justice in our area. So I'm very grateful for that station. And we have public television. Um, Another professor at Indiana University does Politically Speaking, where she examines statewide issues and local issues and interviews folks. The local paper has suffered like many print newspapers have, but we still have the South Bend Tribune, and I'm grateful for that. And I was able to publish an opinion piece in there, and and it is very open to the community. Do you have any stations locally where they carry democracy now? I listen to it on an app. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, no. <laughs> the reason I ask that is even public radio, which I think is wonderful and it's such a valuable resource for our communities and for our nation. It's still got its limitations because there's a hierarchy that wants to keep away from some things which are just too controversial. Maybe in the same way that you mentioned Florida, you know, talking about civil war or slavery is too controversial, even though the facts are there. Community radio, community television, community newspapers can frequently step beyond limitations that those that have allegiance to corporate sponsors, etc., do not have. So, folks, I just really want to encourage you to support your local media, to give them the freedom for news, music, culture, all of these things. They can provide bits that the national stage just won't allow. Please help them out. And again, this is Spirit in Action. Monica Tetzloff is here visiting us from South Bend, Indiana. I want to dive in now, if it's okay with you, Monica, to some of the things that you can't teach. It's not history per se about reparations. In order to talk about the pros and the cons, maybe we should talk about the past few years, several of the steps which have set the stage for the discussion of reparations. In 2019, House of Representatives Bill 40, it was a proposal for a commission to study about reparations. It wasn't approved, but it laid out some of the framework of what we need to talk about. So talk about the recent steps, and then let's talk about reparations, what could happen, what might happen, what maybe is happening. Right. You know, the bill has been proposed, but we're calling it a bill because it has not passed as a law. And it's and it's very controversial. As soon as the word reparations is brought up, many white people say, well, I had nothing to do with slavery. My ancestors came after slavery ended or, you know, I personally don't. And why should there be reparations? And if we start with African-Americans, where are we going to stop? I mean, there's so many groups that could be aggrieved. And what are you doing about reparations in your life? Or, you know, I've had many different questions raised when I say that I support reparations And I do think it's a government function, and it can also be a personal issue. As a Quaker, I have attended workshops where white people work on the issue of racism, and we've been encouraged to find ways that we could maybe pay or maybe take action to do our own personal reparation for what society has done, not wait for the government to do that and for individual Quaker meetings to do that. But at the federal level, I do think the burden is shared more equally if this is a part of a federal budget, it was the government who benefited, the nation benefited from the labor of enslaved people, not just individual masters. There was a great deal of wealth that was created. And and why do I care about the actual money as part of reparations? Because there's such a tremendous wealth gap between African-Americans and whites in this country. And so much of it centers around housing, not so much around slavery, but about all that was lost during the period of segregation and discriminatory housing practices, because most working class people or or middle class people have gained their wealth through their homes. And it's been the opposite for African Americans. I guess maybe it is appropriate time, Monica, to dive into some of the thorny issues. And you just mentioned one that for me makes it so much harder in the US, I think harder than in Germany, In the U.S., we have this, I think, a myth maybe of hyper-individualism. That is to say, I am a success because I'm a good guy 
and you're a failure because you're a bad guy. We therefore discount, at least to a large degree, some of the effects that overarching programs, whether it was slavery or Jim Crow or the FHA loans that so many people were able to advance themselves using, we ignore all of the different ways that overarching programs can also affect us individually. And when they're applied, start out with home ownership and you can actually build wealth in your family. So the fact that some people, because of race or identity in other ways, some people are allowed to benefit from, some are not allowed to benefit from. So this question about individuality and when are people individually accountable and when are we corporately as a group accountable. And this Actually, I think slices on both sides because we may say, I never participated in slavery. I never limited anyone from getting an FHA loan. So why am I responsible? And besides that, my family with 12 kids raised and all kinds of other systemic problems in the system, we didn't benefit. So I can argue against it as a white person and as a person who's African-American. The arguments could be made in terms of individuality or corporate. So I do think that the issues are thorny. That's why when you, as a professor of history, talk about the different ways reparations has happened, it seems to me really valuable. Are reparations made to a group? Are they made to an individual? Native Americans, do you give something to a tribe and therefore that's equal to the individuals who lost a child who was sent off to the boarding schools? Talk, if you could, Monica, what you've seen both historically and what you're encountering studying. And I mean, your Quaker meeting is obviously looking at this as well. Individuality versus corporate, both responsibility and in terms of rights, uh, we've been infringed upon. We deserve some reparations. I think it's a matter of democracy in terms of, I think it would be helpful for communities to talk about this issue together and see what, what could be done. Historically speaking, I think that you're right that sometimes it's been done in groups and sometimes it's happened on an individual basis. Like it was actually individual Japanese who were the survivors, not all Japanese Americans who got reparations in that instance and I also think to South Africa, to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there, reparations were not a part of that. And some people say the jump to reconciliation was maybe too quick. Did that really happen? The truth telling is very, very important. And amnesty was part of that as well. In this case, you know, in the United States, I don't think we're not putting former enslavers on trial. That wouldn't be possible. But in our case, how do we work on reconciliation? We can't just jump to that by telling the truth. There are those steps in between of acknowledgement, apology, and a discussion about repair of harm. And it could be on an individual basis. It could be as group opportunities, such as investment in a neighborhood that had been redlined, you know, redlined being like no one got FHA loans in that area because there were too many Black people. That was the U.S. policy for the time period from the 30s through the 60s. 
And that's the period when so many people came into the middle class, the time when America was really booming and there was a baby boom and and a lot of folks um, benefited there. So it might be targeting a particular neighborhood. It might be descendants. I think in Evanston, you show that you've been harmed by the housing policies and then you receive something. Now, the problem there is, you know, they don't have enough money from their tax base to help more than a fraction of the people who were actually harmed or their descendants. So there's some logistics to work out for sure. That's one reason that, you know, William Darity and Kirsten Mullins book from here to equality says, let's do a federal reparation. And that is it going to be individual. You have to document that you had an ancestor in the 1870 census who was identified as Black. And you have to have identified as Black yourself on the most recent census. Those are some ways to run it. But, you know, I think that we have to listen to people of color and other groups that have been harmed to see what ideas they have and then see what's possible. You mentioned, Monica, that back at the end of the Civil War, there was this proposal, you know, 40 acres and a mule. Do we know if that actually happened anywhere? Well, there was a short time period where it happened, where folks were farming on land that had been set aside by a field order. And the reason was that the Union Army didn't want to feed folks who had run away from slavery. (laughs) And they did know how to farm. And so giving them land, which those plantations had been abandoned by the white enslavers, worked out for both the government and the people that were there. And then people were so angry that they actually took that land back and they gave it back to the uh, former enslavers the former Confederates, because property rights were more important than justice for African-Americans or even, I I would argue that it's hard to be free when you have nothing, (laughs) when you have to start off life as an adult with children and you have maybe a few skills in that context, but you have absolutely no wealth to begin with. And so you're going to have to borrow everything that you have. It was a very tough way to start off a freedom. Again, for me, individuality versus corporate responsibility is one of the hardest things to talk about because there are, are a few African-Americans in our country who are billionaires even. It seems to me that it's hard to make the case that they would have even more billions <laughs> if they were didn't have dark skin or something like that, or that they need anything. Likewise, even though most of the people, I think, fighting on behalf of the North for the Civil War, I think a relative minority of them were concerned about equality for Blacks. I think a lot of them were more concerned about the integrity of the nation as a whole, right? But I do believe that there are people who went into that war and died, white people, who paid with their lives trying to eliminate this evil of slavery. So when I look at individuals, it becomes hard to say, well, your family with your great-great-great-grandfather who died fighting against slavery should pay up more. On an individual level, it's easy to lose track of accountability. And yet, it's still probably true that that white surviving family, even if they lost their great-great-great-grandfather, that they probably benefited from the racism which is so deeply embedded in this country. So, individuality versus corporate. And when you you said uh, one of the proposals is we've got to do it at the federal level. At a federal level, you lose in any individuality. 
And I'm not sure if that's good or bad. And so I want to go back to the paving stones in Germany. Seeing a name and a face makes a big difference. I somehow feel like in order to do this powerfully and to have a transformational experience myself, I need to see names. I need to see my name on where it came down. And my father and my grandfather and my grandmothers and everyone, I need to see people. And so to some degree, it leaves me cold and leaves me feeling like we wouldn't do true reconciliation if we just do it as a corporate mask. Okay, the U.S. was bad. Good. I can go on. I think you bring up a good point there, Mark. And I do think as a, on a spiritual level and a, as a human being, it's really important to reflect on these issues and to see what, I mean, you want to, you want to think about what is just, you know, I, I think I would benefit if more people who are in poverty <laughs> were lifted out of poverty, who had more wealth as a cushion or, you know, by wealth, I really just mean some savings. And there's class-based legislation that would address that. And I really support that. I support the Poor People's Campaign, which does not endorse reparations, but does want to end racism. That is one of its goals and works across the spectrum. So I can readily acknowledge that there are other ways to approach finding justice for people, but we don't want to lose sight of that acknowledgement, the discussion of what is fair. And hopefully, yes, I mean, my vision is for reconciliation. It's just not something that I can bring about. It's something that I might receive as grace from people of color, but it's something to work towards and not something that we can proclaim. You know, to some degree, with my entire little screed that I gave you there about individuality and the need to see faces and names, that might really belong just simply as part of truth-telling, that too many of us want to skip past truth-telling. And at the point when I see the names and the faces, whether it's participating with you in the Freedom Summer course and seeing the places where the lynchings happened, when I see that, all of the sudden, it isn't a theoretical discussion about, oh, there was slavery or there was uh, discrimination. It becomes about people who've really been hurt and people who've really put their lives on the line to try and balance against that. And if we do that truth-telling step, I think it transforms us, gets us ready for the following steps. Yeah, I'm ready for the spirit to move people in different ways once that happens. I think that's the key thing is to seek out truth. And I would like to talk about one instance that happened on the trip of a story that someone told this was in the Delta of Mississippi in a little town called Drew, Mississippi. There we met Gloria Dickerson. And Gloria is featured in a book called Silver Rights, which is about the Carter family, the Carter children, seven of whom were the first children to integrate the Drew schools, the quote, white schools. And one of the things that their mother said was, the school isn't white. It's a public school and you have every right to go there. But we heard from Gloria Dickerson. We heard how not a single child befriended her the whole time that she was there. And in the case of one white girl trying to befriend her, that child was ordered not to associate with her by the authorities in the school to endure through this 
And to keep your eye on the prize, which is what her mother and the other children did, is just so incredible. And to emerge with still so much love for humanity and for self was such a testimony. Gloria Dickerson went on with many of her siblings to go to the University of Mississippi as some of the first Black students. And she said her mother knew clearly that if she sent the children to this academically better school, they could get out of poverty. And that's what she wanted for them. And they knew it too. They actually volunteered. They said, mom, we want to go. We know it's going to be really hard. We want this. We don't want to be poor anymore. And we want to learn. We want to hear what those white kids are learning. And they did learn it and they learned well. They graduated and, and Gloria Dickerson worked for the Kellogg Foundation and she retired. And now she's back in Drew where she started a program for the local kids, the local African-American kids, many of whom still live in poverty, bringing the things that she found in the wider world back. Because the year after the schools became integrated, the white children left once again, went to segregation academies, and those schools have become schools that are so underinvested in that when she came back to Drew, some classrooms had one book for the entire class that everyone had to share. Whereas she researched it and she found in richer school districts in Mississippi, there's a set of books in the classroom and there's a set of books you can take home. But the disparities are an important truth telling, but also the tremendous amount that she could give once opportunities were opened up to her and how she's giving back. So those are some of the things I learned. It was a hard truth. I cried when I heard that the year that she graduated by then, A number of Black students had been able to go to the school, and on graduation day, some white men shot and killed one of her Black female classmates. So they couldn't even have that joy and satisfaction on that day, and that life was just completely randomly sacrificed as a victim of white supremacy in that setting. So these were some hard truths and also just a real a real reckoning face-to-face. And and each person who was listening, I think, had a different reaction, but they were all profound. There's so much profound history you're bringing to us, the personal experience that makes such a difference to taking our steps forward. And again, folks, we've been listening to, speaking with Monica Tetzloff. She's Associate Professor of History at Indiana University of South Bend. Back in September of 2021, she gave a presentation, The Role of History in Reparations from Global to Local. I've got the link for that on northernspiritradio.org. And she also conducts every two years Freedom Summer Course, where she takes students from the university there to the important places throughout the civil rights movement. It helps people see on the ground where the major changes that happen in history. But history is just a way of saying our story. It's not his story. It's our story that we're experiencing. And Monica brings that to us. And I'm so thankful you do that, Monica. And I'm so thankful that not only with your head, but with your heart and spirit, you're leading this effort. And I thank you so much for doing that work. You're welcome, Mark. We'll have links to Monica's presentation and some of the other resources she connects us with. We'll have them all on northernspiritradio.org, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh